Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Episode two, this week we have John Gray from Ghetto Gaster in the studio. Spencer, what did you guys talk about? We got into it. Uh, <laughs> we talked a lot about um, how he's built this food collective, Ghetto Gastro, which is almost like a performance art collective more than food. It's uh, world renowned. Yeah. I mean, and, and what they're doing is kind of bringing Bronx culture to the world and bringing the world kind of back to the Bronx. He's really food. sick. Yeah, he's sick of Brooklyn. He wants the Bronx to be. What's up? Um, Who isn't? Yeah. <laughs> what was really inspiring in talking to him, though, is this sort of transcendence story. He, in his late teens, got caught up in hustling drugs on the streets and almost ended up behind bars for quite a long period of time. He was able to get away from that. Uh, and I won't reveal how. We'll have to. But let this everyone... is redemption through food. Exactly. With Spencer and John. Welcome, John. Spencer, thanks for having me. So a lot of people now know of you and this sort of culinary outfit you've built called Ghetto Gastro. What a lot of people probably don't know, though, is that you're deeply embedded in the worlds of art, design, architecture. Talk to me a little bit about that. How did you get into design and and architecture and art? You know, it's funny because it's like, Food was really just a good excuse for me to finesse my way into all of the worlds that I'm interested in, being the ones that you just mentioned. So I, I think just showing up. Like I feel like 90, 99% of the game is showing up. So if I'm interested in something, I'm going to pull up to the function. So mm. whether it's Design Miami, that's where it started. I'm a good, a good friend of mine, Todd. He told me, like, you need to come down here. He was showing at Miami um Designed Miami maybe in 2007, 2008. And I went down there, and that was kind of like when my where, where everything started. When mm. I was like, oh, okay. Because I've always thought about design in terms of wanting to design the world around me, whether it was like, you think about house, interiors, urban planning. I've always thought about it in that sense, but then actually going to these gatherings where it's like a lot of the, so-called world's best designers. And mm. and I just like design thinking. I like how designers think. So I've always kind of wanted to surround myself with those type of people. Yeah, and along the way, you've become friends with a lot of them, like like David Ajay or Kunle Ayademi. And I consider those gentlemen family. Like David's like a big brother. He's always in the background kind of letting me know how to play, how to move, um, <laughs> what to look at. And, and he doesn't have to use a lot of words, you know, which yeah. is amazing. And David introduced me to Kunle, mm. and that's my guy. Yeah, we, we're cooking up some stuff right now. And how have you navigated that world, which obviously is quite, you know, stark contrast from from the Bronx? Well, well, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think what what the connective tissue is, and and where I connect with people. It's really just people that are curious and love life. And I think a lot of times it's not good to judge, but if people care about where they're eating and considering those choices, usually they're, like, interesting people. And and they're, they're like, curious. So they, it's not just, like, food as function. It's mm. like this is a moment to gather, to have conversation, to enjoy and make a memory. So people that love food is just kind of, that's always... And they'll hit me up for the recommendations that... If I see David is in is in Peru or he's in Mexico, I'm like, I send him a list. Bang, bang, bang. Vera Cruz, make sure you hit this spot. Tell the chef I said what's up. Let him take care. And I'll hit him up. Let him know. All right, I'll let him know you're not doing meat. You're vegan now, you know, and and they'll take care of it. So that, that's kind of like I like to be able to 
utilize my privilege and my expertise in my world to bring it to that world, to all the other worlds, whether it's art, fashion, activism. Whenever a friend is traveling, I love to share these type of spots. Right, right. And connected to design, you sort of had this fashion background. You went to Fashion Institute of Technology. Uh, yes. you, you ran a small denim company for a little while. Yeah, I was a partner in a denim company with my buddies Luke and Rob. They were actual students at FIT. I signed up for night classes and really just went for the library and uh, stay out of jail to to show the judge and the DA that I was trying to be an upstanding citizen. And yeah, I think, yeah, when it, when it comes to objects, the first platform was definitely garments mm. and thinking about construction and seeing things leave, start as an idea in your head and then becoming something tangible. Mm. You tell me a little bit more about the denim company. How did that come about? So, so it's funny that that came about. So how did I meet Luke? So my friend Kiyoka, who was going to FIT, she, um, she was studying menswear and the menswear program was super, they might've only accepted 20 students, maybe less than that person per year. And she was in a menswear program with Luke and Rob. And then I also got connected to Luke because he was selling t-shirts at my brother Barr's shop, like my big brother, like brother as a soul brother, not biological. On um, First Avenue next to Patsy, it was called Everything Must Go. So it was like super ahead of his time. <laughs> Imagine Supreme in Harlem, like skate decks, trucks, really cool T-shirts, had cool sneakers. So Luke was selling there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to FIT. I need to connect with these cats. And then once we linked up, we had a lot of shared experiences and um, views. And they were like really just killing it with that. And we were really both in the sustainability and how that could relate to to apparel. So we were doing the um, natural indigo dye karaoke denim out of Japan. I think we were one of the first um, small American brands that were, were able to access that that fabric besides like maybe double RL, mm. you know, at that time. And we were making the jeans here in New York. We were getting like ridiculous Italian trims. We basically just like, Whatever was the most expensive shit you could get, we tried to get it. And then making it in New York. So they, I couldn't afford to pay the jeans I was making at the time. Mm. But we had some great accounts. Bergdorf, um, Harvey Nichols. It was funny, like, sometimes going to these stores just to, like, either train staff or just see how, how everything was merchandised when people were like, oh, the messenger entrances that way. It's always It was always like a mindfuck. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure navigating that experience probably, you know, impacted how you thought about some of these other maybe like quote unquote white worlds you were. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it was always it was always super interesting because I, I always liked that element of surprise. You know, I like to be a Trojan horse and for people to maybe have some type of stereotype or or perceived notion that when they see me and to be more than what they might perceive, because I'm sure I'm a lot of the things that they they might think, but that that's just scratching the surface, you know. Right, and we talked a little bit about design. Um, you know, you're you're pretty involved in the art world too. You know, whether it's uh, doing like a collaboration dinner during Art Basel or or a talk at the Serpentine Galleries in London. Um, Shout out to um, Hans Ulrich, Jana, <laughs> Claude. Amal, the whole Serpentine crew, if I forgot you, sending big love. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then Hans and Klaus had me do this crazy thing called Brutally Early. Klaus Biesenbach. Yeah, Biesenbach. And, and free, during freeze, waking up at 7 a.m. to do like these, these like lectures. It was fun, though. It was a good, it was a good exercise. Those, the Germanic people are funny, man. They love, <laughs> they love waking up early or not sleeping, rather. Did you have any roots in, in, art culture or my mother always took me to museums um as a kid and it, it's funny because a lot of times you don't understand why you're interested in what you're interested in especially if it starts young and then it maybe drops off but i've i've really always been interested in aesthetics and and space making and wanting to use my hands to make things and, and, and build these worlds and I didn't realize, my mother's like, yeah, that's where we used to hang out. We used to hang out at the MoMA. She worked on Fifth Avenue as a hairdresser. 
Um, on the off days, we would go to the MoMA, walk around, go to the Met, kick it, go eat food. Like so, a lot of a lot of my interests kind of trickled down from my mother, and also my aunt. Like it was this thing called the African Art Fair that used to happen in Chinatown, and I just remember being a kid going to these art fairs with them. And then I also remember like it was people selling black art, almost like Mary Kay, like where they used to like come to the house. They would come to the house and do do like a workshop for people. It's like it was like the the crap. What do they call that? Network marketing like stuff, but for <laughs> art. Yeah. So like people would come through and like talk about why art is a good investment and 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 also going to my grandmother's house. My grandfather passed um, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, but going going to my grandmother's house and just looking at what they had on the walls. I'm like, oh, I've just been surrounded. I never like thought about it. Or 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 recognize it, but the, I, the aesthetic cues were just there. Yeah, it was just like, and I'm like, oh, this is like this painting is older than me, you know. And and the Black Power stuff, a lot of this art repre- was represent re- representation, you know, of the Black aesthetic, Black Power, Black liberation. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, so this is like, I was reading Asada and Native Son and that type of stuff, like in fifth and sixth grade. So yeah it kind of explains my perspectives. I want to go back to your childhood in the Bronx. Okay. Um, I, I read that your family's basically four generations deep in the Bronx. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you grew up in section five of, of co-op city, so which I, most people probably don't realize is like 400,000 residents. It's damn. It's, I don't even, it's that it's many the, people in co-op. It, yeah. Shit. It's the largest, housing development in the United States. Okay. So I I, I want to know sort of your own memory, your own perspective of that experience growing up around that many people and and sort of the impact of the environment you were in. You know, it was weird because I grew up, I grew up, so my mother, she's from the West Bronx, um, which what they now call the West Bronx after the Cross Bronx Expressway kind of split the different different parts of the South Bronx. So my grandmother was actually born in Jersey City. My great-grandmother moved to Harlem from Pittsburgh when she was 18 to to be a nurse and a dietitian. Uh, my great-grandfather came here by way of... He was in Chicago first, born in Texas. They linked. They had my grandmother. My grandmother's their firstborn. They had three daughters. She was born in Jersey City but moved to the Bronx when she was two. So, and then and that's kind of where they held shop. So, like, my great-grandfather, he was uh, was really, really heavy in the community, especially when it came to, like, community development and real estate. He was a treasurer for this organization called the Bronx Shepherds, which did, which did like, low-income housing, like, through the church for, for communities. And he has a black named after him in the Bronx. But I say all that to say this. So, I, I bounced around from—I I li- I was born in the Bronx, Our Lady of Mercy— I lived in Yonkers maybe till I was one, and then my mom's left my pops. We 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 lived with my grandmother in the West Bronx maybe for a year. Then my mom's moved to East Harlem, so I started in East Harlem, a hundred between first and second in Metro, and I went to school at CPE too. And I say this because this was like one of those weird alternative kind of curriculum schools where we learned where we did art and like we cooked food every class, like we made food before we even, like, picked up books to learn how to read. And that was, like, my kindergarten and first grade experience. Then I moved to Co-op City when I was in second grade. And I've been there. I, I grew up there. So mm-hmm. section and Section 5 is, like, a.k.a. Section 8. That's, like, what some people that know would say is, like, one of the more textured parts of Co-op City. And it, and it was interesting because it was mixed. It was a lot of... Jewish people that lived in the first iteration of Co-op City when it was built in like the 70s and then upper middle or just middle class. But if you're growing up in an urban environment, you might consider it upper middle class because they maybe have two cars and two two parents in the household. So it was a lot of that in Co-op City. But I think after the 80s, when I was born... The, the 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 drug the the war on drugs the the gang violence and all of that stuff kind of trickled in, and it was just yeah it was kind of shit goes down. Someone got killed in front of my building a week ago. Mm. Like I came home from the Travis Scott concert and it was like police tape and it was a whole whole bunch of yeah yeah. And how did I mean I assume that it, 
it was impossible for you to avoid as a kid, you know, being in that environment. It's interesting because I kind of chose not to avoid it. I, I definitely could have avoided it. Like I have a cousin who who's like on a, it's like we're like, they have a book, I think, like called like the two, it's called like the two whatever. It's two people that have the same first and last name, but one goes to jail, one becomes a doctor. So my, my cousin was on a track and my mother tried to put me on this track where he was like prep for prep kid, went to St. Bernard's for, for, K through K through eight, Riverdale Country Day for eight through twelve, Harvard for um for undergrad and then Harvard for for his his um I guess what is it MD he to be a doctor whatever and then he did his residency but we kind of we had similar upbringings but I I chose like I I struggled with um kind of following rules in school. I was I like I love being a social being. So I'll finish the work or I would find the work uninteresting. But I always finished the work. I always did good when I did work or showed up. But I just like to socialize. And and they 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 consider that bad behavior. But these are the skills that allow me to be where I am today. And people try to like truncate those parts of you to fit into right. a box that fits, you know? Yeah. So you ended up in some of that world. Talk about that. <laughs> I can remember it like it was yesterday. So my grandmother lived on the same floor as me. She lived in co-op first. And my mother um, applied and we got an apartment like literally on the same floor in the same building. So my grandmother lived down the hall from me, which was like crazy. And she was a teacher at my elementary school. So it's bugged out because I was like, not not the best behaved student, but my grandmother was like worked in a school and she was known as being a really great teacher, but very stern. And then in junior high, when I got kicked out of one of, one of the private schools I was going to, I ended up at a school that my mother worked at <laughs> where I was like raised in hell. Like they called the everyday teachers. But yeah, yeah, I, um, I started, I started, I, I, I um, gravitated towards the streets just to make money. Um, I tried to get, I had working papers. I had older brothers that were um, in, in Massachusetts doing their thing. They're fi- we have different mothers, same father. But their mother moved them to Massachusetts to try to give them a better life. But they just ended up tearing shit up out there and like really running, running shit on the streets. And I went, I remember one summer, it kind of all trickled down. I went up, to, my brother came and picked me up. I went out there to Boston for well, Brockton Mass for like two weeks and just saw him dipping and dodging. And I'm like, okay. So I saw the commerce and I'm like, at that time I still had like hoop dreams. I wanted to play basketball and do all of these things. And when mixtapes were out, I thought I could go to the league. But I remember coming back and like my homies, all my friends were like two to three years older than me and they were smoking weed. And I was like the square athlete that would walk around with a baseball and a baseball glove and throw the ball off the wall and and, and do catching drills with it. And be like, oh, you got the smoking weed? And I remember when my mother told me that she tried drugs when she was a kid, like when like a, a stay away from drugs commercial like came on TV. And I remember asking my mother, do you ever smoke weed? And when she said, yeah, I remember I was like devastated. So I was like 13 or 14 at this time. Fast forward 15, I go away for that summer. This is the summer I'm going, it's between ninth and 10th grade. I come back, I steal a bunch of weed from my brother. I start smoking with the homies that summer. And then I remember just wanting to get, asking my mother for some money and my grandma, my, my mother said no. And I asked my grandmother for some paper. And she was like, nah, no, it was something small, like $5. And I was like, all right. They was like, get a job. And I'm like, all right, bet. I literally, so in Carp Cities, there's, there's a mall called Bay Plaza. I literally applied to every job. And and I went to Catholic school, so I knew how to put it on. I knew how to throw on the khakis, tie a tie, put on a shirt. I'm, I've always been a polite guy, you know, and articulate. So I, 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 could, I could do that thing. And I remember just being, like, going to each and every spot, and they're like, no, we can't hire you. You don't have any experience. I'm like, literally, to do stock or to wash dishes at Applebee's or be a waiter, I need. I'm like, how am I supposed to get experience? And I'm like, I'm not working at McDonald's. Right. 
I'm not doing that. Like, I, I remember the homies that worked at McDonald's smelling like burgers after. <laughs> I was like, nah, I can't do it. So I, um, I had a scam, man, and I saved up like $15 of my laundry money. We used to put the Metro cards in the coin slot and just keep the quarters. And also we had a way to save our money. So I'll take my laundry money that I had from my mom's, which might've, I might've did it like, might've been $5 each time. And I did it three times. I had 15 bucks. Me and my homie Eli went half on, it was this dude, this crazy, like eccentric white dude named Keith. And he, we went to him to buy three dimes. We put our $15. I had 15. He had 15. We bought three dime bags that, we're fucking giant bags of garbage. But I broke down each dime into five nickels. So that's like you turn 10 into 25, $30. You do that three times. And then after that, we that first flipped, I might have smoked one bag of it. You know, I bought a half ounce of garbage after that for 30 bucks or 35 bucks. And then after that, it was just no looking back. I was going ham. Right. You know? And eventually that led you to FIT. Well, yeah. Well, it's a lot of steps between that. But so that, like, that $30 flip ended up with me probably at the peak grossing, like, 50 to 60 grand a week when I was 19 years old, you know, grossing. So I was doing a lot of wholesale. So it wasn't all profit. But I was, that type of money was in and out of my hands weekly. Like, if I didn't make... 10 G's or like five to 10. If I didn't, if I didn't make five G's in a day, I was like, what the fuck? Like, mm. this was a waste, you know? And I got vividly, the reason why I don't sleep straight now is because I hadn't had, once I got a cell phone when I turned 16, I, ne- I never had a straight night's sleep. Like if someone called me at two, my hustle was so ferocious. If someone called me at 2 a.m. and they were a mile away. You'd go out. I'll, I'll do that to make $5 when I first started. $10, maybe Five not, but maybe ten, fifteen dollars, and I'll try to force them to get at least twenty, twenty-five. Like I, I had forced hustle tactics. My man Ness calls it FHT. He said I'm the master of the FHT. Like I'll call you, like yo, it's time to re up, bro. Like trust me, you don't want to miss this. He's like, yo, no, nah, I actually just saw you. I'm kind of good. And I'm like, nah, here, take this. <laughs> so I mastered that tactic, and it was so crazy. Like the week before I got arrested. I had been wanting to get out the game, and my girlfriend at the time, she was like, yo, look, you got money. It was threats on her lives, people coming to her job, different types of altercation and bang-outs happening by her workplace. And I'm like, you know what? I also promised myself I don't want to sell drugs as an adult. You know, so I tur- I had done that. So you were 19 at the time. I was 20 when I got caught. Uh-huh. But when uh-huh. I was, like, 19 and when I started kicking it with her, I was like, hey, you know what? I don't see myself doing this past the age of 20. And she's like, all right, like, cool. And it, it was like that 05, 06 year was crazy. A lot of violence, a lot of crazy shit. Friends I thought were friends were like turning on me. My aunt, who was my godmother, passed away in 06 in April. Like she made it, I think I feel like she held on to celebrate my birthday with me and then she passed. And she's like the person that's probably been the biggest influence on my life after my mom's. Like, she gave me Think and Grow Rich to Read when I was 13. She used, like, Beanie Babies because she used to collect Beanie Babies to talk to me about, like, equity and stocks. And she was a computer programmer at IBM, but she started at Banker's Trust. So she was, like, successful. She had a nice house in Rockland County. And when I lost her, I felt really conflicted because I'm like, I didn't spend precious time with her in her last days because I was running these streets worried about making five to $10,000 a day. And I'm like, what the, f-? like, so I started having these internal, and also when I started, when I wasn't just selling weed and I started selling Coke and thinking about, cause I've always been like on my revolutionary, I'm like, what am I doing in my environment? And I always wanted to make sure that I put more drugs, like harder, dr- like more, I made sure it was balanced. I'm like, I don't, I didn't, never sold crack. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to go go that route. And I made sure I put drugs in white communities, too. So I had, like, routes in Vermont and all of these things and stuff like that. I was like, we got to balance it out. I'm not just going to put this shit where, where, where I'm at. Um, but I know I went on a tangent. But where, where are we getting? So, yeah, 
this leads me to FIT because so a week before I caught my case, my mother's like, yo, I had a crazy dream, like, get rid of all your shit. And I'm like, I don't know if I could get rid of it, but what I'll do is like, this will be my last. I'm not going to re-up when I finish what I got. And a week later, I got caught with the last of what I had. I was going, And I was going to drop it off for someone else to deal with because I had a spot in Harlem. And I got, and my, the issue with me is that you could call me to spend 20000 but I'll still pick up your call if I was in the area and I'll take $20 from you. Because I thought about it like lunch money. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is just lunch. All right, whatever. Like, so this kid calls me for a 20. I had been serving him for a long time, for years. Like, we grew up together. I didn't think anything of it. He ends up being with the police, but I don't know their police. So it's like he's at my car window and maybe 30 meters away, two guys are like sitting on a stoop. And I look at them, I've never seen them before, but they're like younger guys. They don't, you don't, they don't scream cop. And I just give them, at this point, for something that small, I'm just grabbing the weed out the bag. I'm like, all right, here, just take, just give me like lunch money, gas money, whatever, it's nothing. And then he he comes back. He's like, yo, do you happen to have any um, Coke on you? And I thought it was strange because he never asked me for that ever. But I had it. And I'm like, well, you know what? So I do the same thing with the Coke. I had like 200, a quarter key on me, whatever, 200 grams. And I just snap off like a little piece, a third or a half a gram. I'm like, here, keep, take it. And me being young and how I was at the time, I had an Audi because I still wanted to be discreet, like no rims. I wanted to look like a college kid. So it's like I wear do-rags and shit now, but when I was hustling, you wouldn't catch me. Like, as an adult, when I was driving around, you wouldn't catch me, like, with a do-rag. I'll be, like, in a polo shirt and maybe a blazer in an Audi. I'm like, I just want to look like a college kid. So, but I skirted off. Like, I skirted off the block, hit the stop sign, boom, 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 hit the light. I'm about to get on the highway, and in my rear view, it's just like someone in, like, a Nissan Altima just cuts me off crazy. And I'm like, wow, that's aggressive. And then, like, just vans form of me, like, 18. And fast forward, I'm facing 10 years. But I had already been thinking about T-shirts and streetwear because I'm like, I'm really in the streets. So when I see kids that look like they're from the suburbs doing Wu-Tang T-shirts, I'm like, I think I could take a crack at this. Let and this is that. about a month before I got locked up. So... That seed was planted. The seed was planted that I was retiring. I was just trying to finish out the summer, have a nice little summer run. And I got caught middle of July. And and that's, that's kind of, it kind of fast forwarded it, all of that. Like and, I just. And what was the, what happened in the case? How long? So was... what happened was I went to FIT. I got a job at Lens Crafters. Shout out to my man Kwame for getting me that job. Then my cousin Billy got me a job in the music in- industry doing quality control for this company called Buddy Lube, which was which was was bugged out because I was literally responsible. I don't remember if you remember MySpace, I remember, but yeah. Snapvine, where you could call like fifty cents page and leave a voicemail on his page. So I was responsible for like deleting hate voicemail or for like fifty cents Slayer. All of these weird, like, music MySpace pages. That was, that, and these people made a business out of managing widgets. I guess they had a nice little run. So that was my job. I was working in Williamsburg. Mm. So basically, my lawyer, and I had money for bail, I had money for a lawyer. My lawyer went to the DA, like, look, we got this kid. He's good. My great grandfather from the Bronx Shepherds, Robert Johnson, who was the head DA of the Bronx at the time, they knew my family. So when I called on people to get, do character letters. And once again, a lot of my homies get locked up. They 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 won't even go to throw on a suit when you go to court, even though you shouldn't have to, because some people might not afford a suit or be able to buy it. But it's, it does present, it paints a different picture. So you had support network. You had a yeah, community like my around aunt, you. My, my aunt came up from Virginia. My grandmother, my mom, they all came to court with me. I'm in a Tommy Trench button-up shirt, Oxford tie, fitted pants. Like, I'm speaking, like, yes, sir. Like, I'm speaking like this to the DA and to the judge. So they said, they I pleaded guilty to, my, my felony dropped from an A2 felony, which I think carries 10 plus. I pled out to a D felony, which carries 
maybe three to nine. But what happened was they said, we're going to suspend your sentencing for two years. And it worked out good for my lawyer because it still made me have to pay him because I had to go to court every three months for two years and I had to pay him every court date. So I pay, he got paid out. Um, I had, I had, I stayed out of trouble for two years and we're talking about, I'm taking the train. I don't even want to look anybody in their eyes because I don't want any chance of conflict. I'm like reading books. I'm just, I'm a square. I'm like, I'm just trying to get through this case because when I was facing that, like you get that, that feeling in, the, in your pit of the stomach and I'm like, yeah, I can't go to jail. And I was in the streets wilding because both of my brothers had been in jail. So I was like, what's the odds all three of us go, even though the odds are that we all three go, mm. you know, when you look at the numbers and the stats. Yeah. During this whole time, your, your, your youth, your, your mom was actually cooking some really good meals. And, and I think it's interesting and worth noting that, that she was really interested in curative cuisine and had actually studied it at, at the natural gourmet Institute. What was the, what was the food like in your home and, and what, what sort of, um, role did that play in your life? I'll be honest. When I was in the streets, I remember it was a point when my mom's didn't know what to do with me. She called my godfather. I had a girl in the crib. We were doing things we shouldn't have been doing. And I remember my godfather came to the crib and the girls in the bathroom, like, not dressed, like, like, and they're like, yo, either you leave or, you, or the drugs leave. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm leaving with the drugs. Fuck you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm 16, like, so me and my mother had a phase where, like, I rented a room in the building I grew up in. I'd see my mother in the elevator and not even, we didn't even speak to each other. We looked at each other like total strangers. Like, I look at my mother, like, not even say a word. And she said that, like, that crushed her. It crushed me, too, because I don't feel like she loved me. Um, but what, what, what we, I got there. Oh, so boom. My mother, so when my aunt got cancer, I think that was the impetus for my mother to start thinking about food as medicine, healing. When you think about like herbs, Dr. Sebi and these natural, natural kind of curative methods, she really went into that. But my food journey started with my mother because she was a single mother, worked on Fifth Avenue, loved food. We lived in East Harlem. We would go out to eat. We'd go eat Indian food. We'd go eat Chinese food, like Vietnamese food. So my palate, young, got trained for different flavors. And I really, I remember loving the the really bubble, like the bubble bread at the Indian restaurant. Like it came out like a dome. And I used to just love poking a hole in it and then ripping it apart and then taking the chutneys and doing my thing. So that's like how the love of food started. And then I went to the 92nd Street Y. I made a cookbook when I was like five or six there, after school there and all of that. Um, I used to do the Honda. We used to make latkes with the applesauce and play dreidel. Um, but at this fast forward to when I'm like a teenager, I wasn't eating any of the shit my mother was making because she was sprouting beans and she had a dehydrator. So I'm like, yo, what the fuck is this science experiment going on in this refrigerator? Like, I want to get a beef patty with cheese from the block. Like, I don't know what this is going on. Like, so I wasn't really trying to eat that food, you know? Um, but yeah, she was yeah. doing her thing. She was doing her and thing. I read in a, a New York Times piece from 2016 that as a kid, you you were reading The Joy of Cooking. Yo, it's crazy. And I don't know how I got through like 20 pages for a roast, roasted chicken. But I was like reading that shit. Um, yeah, she had The Joy of Cooking and I would read that before bed. And the language was so dense. And I was really young. I, I'm like, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> yeah. And it was a, a meal, um, I, I understand, that you had in Brooklyn at a, a bistro on Myrtle Avenue that led you to kind of conceive this idea of of the collective you now run, Ghetto Gastro. Well, yeah. And I wouldn't say I run it. We're all partners and we have different roles. But so my man, Saya, who was the chef at a bistro, I was living in Dumbo at the time with a, with a, um, with a, with a lady friend of mine. And that was like my spot. I'll go to Myrtle, eat at AB show. He had the fire fried chicken. And at the time I wasn't eating a lot of chicken. I was doing pescatarian, mostly dairy free. And he he was killing it. He had like a Joe Love couscous, amazing braised kale, really good salmon. And I would get that to go a lot. And I remember 
something was happening with the lease and he he asked me if I would consider like buying a restaurant and, and running it with him. And at the time I'm like, I don't really I can't really do it. But I remember like going to a bistro for dinner, taking a late nap, waking up, and the name Ghetto Gastro came to me. And yeah, that's that's kinda that's kinda and it was ghetto gastronomy. And I hit my man Larry. I was like, yeah, what do you think about ghetto gastronomy? And he's like, cut off the on like the 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 end of it and just do ghetto gas. And I'm like, yeah, ghetto gas show's good. And that was that was and I still have the note like in my iPhone. It's probably like February something 2012 that that happened mm. during fashion week when I was like, yo, this fashion shit ain't really it for me. Yeah. So that was the inception. Um, I want to talk about the, the word ghetto. Cause I think it's really interesting in this context of how in a way by using it and using it in your own specific way, you're kind of reclaiming it. There's this sort of reclaiming going on. Um, and in a in a piece with Vogue, you you actually put it really nicely. So I'm just going to use that quote right, right. now, and then I, I'd be curious to hear what you know your thoughts are on this. But you, you said ghetto is nothing but creativity that hasn't been stolen yet. And I stole that quote because I heard that quote somewhere else. I was at, or I might have saw it, but it wasn't credited. So I don't know who to credit for that, but someone. <laughs> it's a great quote, and it's the truth. And for me, also ghetto. I like I like the idea of some things being polarizing. And I like the idea which the name is. Yeah. I mean, I was even reading comments on your recent Wall Street Journal story. Oh, I, I never read the comments. There's before. only a few comments where yeah. people are like, they should change the name. I'm like Even even amazing people that I love and trust have suggested like, ah, oh, the name ghetto. Why don't you just call it G Gastro? I'm like my dude, do you hear yourself? G Gastro? Like, that shit ain't, that's not us. For me. What does ghetto mean to you? And I'll tell you one thing. So I'll unpack it a little bit. So I'm very aware that a lot of black and brown people, the name ghetto or the word ghetto being used in the context of what we're doing could seem um, retroactive. It, it could seem... Um, like a like a performative blackness, like for for clients that usually are white males of means, but it's not for me. And I've never been one to care about respectability politics, because also within being black and brown, it's a lot of blurriness. We're not just one people with one mind. It's a lot of different ideas. And I've also in the art world, you you I've noticed like different levels where it's like all right. You have your Yale MFAs, which I love. A lot of my friends are Yale MFAs. But then I got banned from all New York City high schools. You know, I have a GED. And, you know, so it's like it's different types of social classism within just the world. So for me, I'm like, the name is a commentary on that. And it's just brash. I like being brass. Like, yeah, we coming through with do-rags, chains. And we're going to cook some of the best food. We're going to do some of the best design. And and I want you to think about differently about the next brother or sister you see on the train and what they could do, you know, that might that might look like me. And it's also ghetto, for me, it's, it's home. You know, so when I think about how people in Mumbai, Kinshasa, Nairobi use the word slum, you know, it's, it's identifying a place and the people. And it's also implicating the systems and the neglect that have created these conditions. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's also this nature that you're alluding to about it sort of meaning like raw or unadulterated or kind of just like there's a in your faceness. Yeah. It. It's like no code switch. It's like, this is what we are. This is who we are. And this is what we are doing. And yeah, this is, this is premium. This is luxury. It's not just, like, it's really trying to reject. And it's the odd thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to reject the white gaze and the white um, the white supremacy and, and white privilege being the validating force in, in which we work out of. But then the, the, the other side of that is those are our clients, <laughs> you know? But it's, for me, it's a, it's a Robin Hood approach. So how do we take 
the work we do and then reinvest and create infrastructure mm-hmm. in these neighborhoods, a la ghettos, slums, favelas, and create a model of where, because a lot of the, my conversation is with me when I'm 15 or 16. It's like, I didn't have me to look at, you know, as an option. Like, usually the people that came back to the school assemblies to speak about their successes, I thought they were squares. So it's like, who's talking to who I was when I was 15, 16? So a lot of times that's my driver. Mm. Yeah, and and the sort of mission of Ghetto Gastro is to bring... Bronx to the world and the world to the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that, Larry. Tell tell the listeners what ghetto gastro is. So yeah, it's like it's a state of mind. It's a philosophy. Um, it's it's like down the line. I would hope that people reflect on what we're doing, not just as a style of food or as a type of social sculpture, um, like in the in the vein of a Joseph Boys or a David Hammonds. Um, but it's it's more or less like a school of thought of taking what you have and then just present it in a way that because you believe is world-class is world-class. And I can't, like my, me and my partners, we, we did put in the work and we're able to learn what so-called world-class is to then deconstruct and then reconstruct what our vision is. Mm. So I, I think it's a state of mind and it's a, it's a, it's a vibe, really. That's what Ghetto Gastro is. And the mission is, like, when we talk about bringing the Bronx to the world, it's like celebrating flavors, celebrating aesthetics, celebrating the sounds that were birthed in the Bronx. It's kind of like the Empire Strikes Back, you know? It's like me really just being upset at Brooklyn getting all the love, <laughs> you know? People be like, we're Brooklyn at in the club. It's real loud. But then you the Bronx, like, eh. And it's like, happening. I mean, there's yeah. Bronx Brewery. There's a, there's a lot of restaurants We love up. Bronx Brewery, but they also aren't from the Bronx. Uh. But I got mad love for them. We work for them, and I like, like what they're doing. But so me, it's like kind of also this notion of like homegrown, for us bias. Like, yeah, you might think we're so, so called successful because you see us in... Paris with Virgil, but you'll also see me in the corner store. I'm, I'm avoiding plastic, but you might see me buying a Poland Spring because I'm thirsty on, on your block or right. getting a slice of pizza on a block. So mm. it's like that being accessible and also making sure that it's showing that it's important that like we're not taking our money bags and going to Tribeca. Although I did live in the West Village at one point, it was more for market research purposes. <laughs> yeah. And, and elaborate a little bit on the community element of what you're doing. Um, I know that you've had aspirations of building like a community garden and. Yeah. We wanted to do the community garden and our buddy Hugo McLeod, who's a brilliant artist, designed this beautiful kind of landscape um, garden, but we we actually had to change location, so then we don't ha- we didn't have the outdoor space, but we'll still still do it. So for us right now, like this weekend, um, Kiara Christina, who's a really dope young curator from the Bronx, she assists my boy Larry. She's hosting like an art workshop in the community where we'll do a little bit of food, but then she's like walking through art, just art history. So thinking about how do we become, we have a space. How do we use this space to engage, interact with the community, and still stay true to us, you mm. know? Yeah, and this space is Labyrinth 1.0. Labyrinth 1.1. And we have to— 1.1. Oh, 1.1. And we're going to have to move into 1.2 soon because they're going to start demo on that building this summer. So I'm, like, actively looking for spots. Mm. And tell me a little bit about— um your business model. Cause I think that that's also really interesting to understand that this isn't a catering company. This is, this is a full on sort of, um, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, 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 I I say it's, it's always been difficult to, it's weird because if if people hear that you work with food, they immediately, the, the first, the first question is, so the goal is to open a restaurant. I'm like, Nah, <laughs> like we're grossing the restaurants week in one event, you know? So for us, it's a commission, a commission base. It's com- like not commission, like selling something to get a commission, but we're ultimately our clients commission us to create these works, mm-hmm. which are live sculpture and they'll include food, 
yeah. music. Sometimes we actually make art or we collab, like we did the Radical Kitchen with the Serpentine with Frida Escobedo. And mm-hmm. that was a real about a conversation about colonialism, empire, who decides, yams. who decided using the yams, you know, you know what's up, and the transatlantic slave trade and reappropriation of foods and, and, and culture and names from Africa to be marketed for mass culture. So so it, it just, it runs the gamut. And our motto is like, we don't do any sales. It's really people holler at us. And I get crazy emails. So like, they'll send an email to Howell at Ghetto Gastro and Ari or someone might respond like, all right, well, thanks for calling us before we start. Unless it's something like for a friend or people that we really want to support. If you're a brand just reaching out to us and we don't know you, we don't have any, it's like, yeah, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get so offended, and it's like, it's like if you walk into any store, this is the price. This water might be ten bucks, but you don't have to buy it. It's a water fountain right there. It's like it's cool. It might not be for you, but people get get brash, and yeah. sometimes I really love just fucking spanking them on the email if they're talking crazy to my people, you know. And I think it's interesting as a business model too, in in relationship to time, because mm-hmm. you know you mentioned a restaurant, which would probably require being open for lunch, dinner, all those hours, all that turnover, and you can do the same thing, revenue wise, with one event. Yeah. So what? And you- enjoy it. Yeah. Like like for me, is like the the idea of a restaurant and being there and real because whatever we do, we're gonna want to do it with excellence, so it will require us to, like, really be there. I'm not interested in that. You know, I don't want to create a job mm. for myself. It's, this whole thing kind of came from reverse engineering what I wanted my life to be like because I spent so much time with money being my God and and that taking up my time and losing my aunt and not having that time to spend it with her. So, like, really reflecting on time and thinking about, how I want to spend my time, who I want to spend my time with, and and also realizing another thing, like in these communities, like I've had the privilege to realize and be around a lot of wealthy people, like proximity to wealthy people isn't success, and a lot of these motherfuckers are whack. (laughs) So like spending time with whack people is not fun, no matter how much money somebody else might have. Like, so what do you, you know, it's not going to change your life, and you could really get caught in that toilet bowl canoe of just being in that. So that's why I went back. I'm like, I'm not feeling this. Like I'm, I'm like my neighbors didn't speak to me until I dog sat my mother's poodle, and then it was like, oh hi, don't you live? And I'm like, I've been living in this building for a year. Now you want to speak, you know? So going back home and the way people ask, like I was on the elevator today. My my grandmother taught the lady's daughter in fourth grade. She's like, how's your grandmother doing? Like, those type of things really made me understand how important community was. Mm. Not, I also really do enjoy walking into a great restaurant where I can eat food I want to eat, which is a struggle sometimes at home, especially in co-op because it's so isolated and I don't drive. But having yeah. people ask about my family kind of tips to scale a little right. bit more. And it's and it's so refreshing to hear you say this, having understood that, you know, you've gotten to really travel the world doing this and mm. experience um really kind of polar extremes. I mean, yeah. your clients have included Airbnb, Bank of America, um, you know, you've done things with Microsoft, Jack Daniels, Instagram. You mentioned yeah. Virgil earlier. Yeah, Virgil. I feel like Byrito. Um, we got some stuff cooking. We're doing some stuff with Beats, Apple in Hong Kong next week, Cartier after, after that. We have a partnership with Omar Piguet. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting thing. Like I was just in Big Sky in Montana skiing, and then I'm back in the Bronx right after. You know, so it's like the Yellowstone Club to the Bronx. It's, it's always. But I, but it just also reinforces that the, bridge, the work I'm supposed to be doing. And you're this bridge that shows it's actually not that far. Yeah, it's like, and and you could be yourself. Like, decide who you are mm-hmm. and just ride with that. Because a lot of times we'll spend time or we'll waste time yeah. trying to present ourselves in ways to, 
fit these ideas of what you think you're supposed to be, ideas that are presented and marketed to us. But then people respond to you when you're comfortable and when you're yourself and you're doing something from an honest place. And food by its very nature is about comfort. Um, It was amazing um, and inspiring watching uh, Lester, who's one of your co-founders and Mm -hmm. partners, Lester Walker. Um, I was watching when he was on Chopped. That was a funny episode, right? This great episode where he talks about how he had this like deep, you know, anger at a young age because his dad had died. Um, But that cooking saved him. Cooking Mm -hmm. was the sort of thing that pushed him forward, gave him momentum. He he did the careers through culinary arts program, ended up working at John George. I think this idea of like food as a a tool to turn your life around, um, or in your case, just creativity. I mean, uh, talk about that from the perspective of, of you and the partners. Cause, um, you know, it's also worth noting Malcolm Livingston, He's a former pastry chef at Noma, mm-hmm. you know, super, you know, kind of WD fifty, WD fifty celebrity and in, in top five in, in, in his world. own right, pastry I mean, dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. just and, in general. And yeah. Pierre Serrao, who trained in Italy, working at Krakow in Milan, mm. and and um, you know, later worked at some restaurants here in New York. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of bring all these guys together, and how mm-hmm. did you, and how do you, th- how do you view, I guess, collectively? the role that food has played in all, all four of your lives? Well, it started with me and Les. So me and Les is from the same block. And anybody that knows, like, Les, these are like bona fide street dudes, you know? Like, and you could probably see it just by looking and feeling like, but he he was always in the kitchen. And him, my, my buddy Kwame also did the CCAP program in Park West after him. So... Me and Les connected on our love of food. I actually was closer with his younger brother, who's closer in age with me. His younger brother, Chad, is two years older than me. And Chad is someone I looked up to when we used to play ball. And he always held me down because my grandmother was his teacher and she held him down. So we always had that kinship. And then me and Les connected on the food. I let Les tell the story like some of our first early conversations because um, I don't want to put him on blast. So I don't want to put myself on blast through him. But... But yeah, so we like I was younger than him, and you know, age difference when you're like four year age difference when you're like thirteen, seventeen, or fifteen and twenty, it's a big difference, you know. So we we started bonding like when I when I was like maybe seventeen, eighteen, like really heavy in the streets doing my thing, and I always we always discussed the idea. He had I remember he had ideas. He wanted to do some catering stuff, food trucks, and I was always down to kind of maybe be an investor if he needed it. I always looked at it from that point of view and I was when I was when I had caught the case I had um, also went to this business plan program that Alan Houston sponsored with Citibank and, and the Harlem Y and I was taking the knowledge I was learning on putting together a formal business plan and giving it to less I was like yo here this is what I'm reading this is what I'm look at, looking at you want to do this food truck look at this so we just really started bonding like heavy in 2000 seven, eight after I caught my case and I met Malcolm. I was on a date with my, um, the lady friend I was living with in Dumbo. I went to WD-50. I did some research on, because she had really crazy eating restrictions, diet restrictions, dietary restrictions. Like, is there anything on this menu that she could eat? So one thing, she liked ribs. They had a rib. Um, it was definitely not a normal rib um, at WD-50, <laughs> if you know anything about the cuisine. But I saw Malcolm on the website, and I'm like, yo, this young black dude is running a pastry kitchen? So we went through the—this is when WD was still doing a la carte. So we went through the menu, got to the dessert, and then, yeah, I just I just ran down on him. I'm like, yo, he did this crazy aerated ice cream, which is like he made ice cream and then vacuum sealed it. But it was just like—imagine cotton candy ice cream. It was like air, but cold mm. and— I'm like, yo, root, it was like root beer flavored. Actually, Mac, when you hear this, man, we need to maybe bring that back to the lab. Um, and yeah, I ran down. I'm like, yo, I need to meet this guy. He was getting changed downstairs. He didn't want to come back upstairs and meet me. But uh, he came up. We connected. I told him about Ghetto Gastro was the idea at this point. And I'm like, yo, if you have time, I know you're crazy busy doing what you're doing here. He's about to get married too. I'm like, if you have time, like let's jam on this together. Let's really, 
I think we could do something, you know? And me being an outsider, mm. I was able to see the opportunity. Like, yo, we could... And because of the worlds I had access to through my time in fashion and via art, and I'm like, oh, we could come through and just... Right. Really, we got something to say. Like, we we could... It's an open lane that we could really just carve. And, and your your kind of breakout, if you could call it, I guess, was this... Waffles this, and Models. Was that the event with Solange or... That was Cardi B. Okay. So this is when Cardi B was still a dancer. And I had seen... I had met her the night before dancing. And I'm like, yo, we're doing this party, Waffles and Models. Would you be down? She's like, yeah. Like, it's like, I'm making money. I'm like, yeah, you'll be... You're going to make some... And she was super cool and... That was where our story with Cardi B started. Like, she was dancing at the first Waffles and Models, and the photojournalist from the New York Observer, before they were pro-Trump, I'll never be in them now, um, photographed us, and they did a story on Waffles and Models, and that was, like, our first piece of print press, and the photography was good. And it was, it was definitely the best party of Fashion Week that week. And that's, that's where it started. Mm. And, and rest in peace to my man Nelson, who put up some bread for us to execute that. He passed away this um this past Friday, man. Had a brain aneurysm. That shit really fucked me up. But mm, I know he up there looking down on us happy, man. Yeah. So And in in the years since you've done things like converting a hundred twenty-fifth street apartment building into Harlem World for Airbnb. You've cooked jerk jerk bone marrow with Martha Stewart. Yeah, yeah. Um you, you've been on the Rachel Ray show. Uh-huh. Uh you've done a Black Lives inspired pie with Hank Willis Thomas. Shout out to Hank and the and Rude, a new baby. You know, big up to y'all. And even during Art Basel, you you, you did this uh freeze-dried coconut powder uh, atop these plates that look like it cocaine. Looked, yeah, it was mirror plates, and it was bugged out because our friends, um, so we did the party with Pagal and Grit, and we rented this mansion, and the dude that owns the mansion, I guess he planted a spy in the party that night, and it was crazy, like Virgil's DJing and all of these things, Theophilus, Ferg, everybody, Rocky, everybody was coming through, and we had this dish, and it really showed who the fiends were because people were like walking past the kitchen thinking it was really coke and they wanted to party. And then also the next day, um, my friends who had rented the spot, Grit, like they're like, yeah, the owner just called about all of these drugs that were being done at the party. They had a drone flying outside. It was, it was wild. But yeah, so all It was of those, food. It was food. It was food. And all of those different things, it's just having fun. It's like, we approach projects like, what do we want to do? Right. <laughs> you know, the commission is an opportunity for us to just do something that we wouldn't necessarily do that we want to do. And now you're kind of creating a, your own sort of media platform too with these these the day. These the day, yeah. So we dropping those on the first and fifteenth of every month. You know, quick people have been wanting recipes from us from a while for a while. And I'm like, I look at Bon Appetit. Let me not say Bon Appetit because we might be doing a project with them soon. Shout out to Bon Appetit. But I look at some of these traditional food recipe outlets and I'm like, I don't want to do it just top down. It's like, how do we make this us and bring a bring a vibe mm. to it, make it make it somewhat entertaining, something that's interesting to us. So that's where Steve's Day came. And it's really also a platform to highlight the spice line that we're working on called Seasoning. There's going to be a line of spices and sauces just so people can make Things like that are super tasty, but relatively easy. It's like if you don't have an hour to prep or just like here, like some recipes, make some flash shit. You have a significant other. You have you're hosting some friends like we're going to give you the tools to just make some tasty flash shit. You know? mm. And uh, you're also working on a kitchenware collection, Triple Beam Dream. Yeah, TBD. I'm actually going to Murano in a week. To, to work on the first samples and we're doing a film with Nowness mm. um, about the whole process because it really relates to Corningware and Pyrex and how that played into the crack era. So taking some of those aesthetics and really t- t- turning the pain into something precious, you know? So I think that, and I think that's what I do with my practice in general. I think it's like taking pain and presenting it in a precious way. 
And there's a knife line Ogun. Ogun, yeah. So that's I was super interested in like the Yoruba deities and and thinking about what we were doing on the continent before missionary work, before slavery and and some of these traditions. And Ogun is the is it's a it's a town in Nigeria. It's it means war, but it's also the god of iron, um, the Orisha of iron, the deity of iron. But if you think about Ogun, it relates to Shogun. So we're making the blades in Japan, and we we love the bladesmiths over there. Some of the best, like Takamura, our people in in, in um, Takefu Knife Village. We're like, how do we bring these ideas and aesthetics together in a way that's truly us? And that's that's, that's mm. how we started it. Yeah. Mm. I also uh, read recently that you're going to be launching a Caribbean style patty chain, and and thinking about a vegan ice cream. Oh yeah, we're doing we're doing dairy free um, gelato, so that's thirty six bricks gelato, and then patty posse are the patties, and the patties are crazy. It's like Malcolm created this crust, and it's flaky and. It's because the patty's all about the crust. And then we have some really, really dope fillings, you know, that are non-conventional. Mm. So really just taking the culture, things that we grew up with, and 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 presenting them with a different skin, you know. Mm. We're not, like, doing rocket science or, or, or curing cancer. It's just, like, we're literally, a lot of this stuff is, is based, it's, it's, like, selfless selfishness. Like, the world needs better rich people. We're going to become them and do what we want to do for our community with the funds. We don't want to ask permission to do anything. It was like, we're going to get the bag and do what we want to do. And we're going to get that bag making shit that we want. Like, sometimes I want to just wake up and be able to have a, throw a patty in the oven for 15 minutes and have something delicious like that I want, where it's not a headache, where I have to travel 30 minutes or go downtown and eat something. Mm -hmm. And it's also just not, it doesn't exist in the way that we're going to do it. Mm. I wanted to end our conversation on the Bronx and okay. specifically thinking about both the work you're doing and the impact that you hope it has on the Bronx, but mm-hmm. also sort of the inverse of that, like how you hope the work you're doing in a way is sort of exporting the Bronx to the world. Um, Cause there's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the realities of the hardships of the Bronx, like the South Bronx is the highest rate of food insecurity in the country. Shit. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Fuck. And and you know what's ironic about that? Hunts Point is also the home to the largest food distribution center of its kind in the world. Like the the Fulton fish market that moved from South Street Seaport up there is the second largest in the world to Tuskegee in Tokyo. Yeah. So it's like, and, and this is the type of shit that really just frustrates me where I want to get on some gangster shit, but I'm just doing it a different way, you know, because a way that really resonates. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading online about Hunt's Point that um, they generate $2.3 billion in annual sales. So the disparity of that, 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 mm. that there's the highest rate of obesity in New York City in the Bronx. There, Diabetes, asthma. Yeah, I mean, the, you have asthma, you have, um, you know, children who are more likely to be hospitalized, period. Um, all that happening in this this, like, really robust economic situation for Hunt's Point. Yeah, it's 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 what a, what sort of impact could you, you know, see happening or or think, would you hope to have? I think for me it's like really like hopefully impregnating not impregnating, that's maybe not a good <laughs> word to use these days. But being infectious in a way that people it's really I just want to shine the light on how great we are. Yeah. As a culture, as a people and what we've been able to create when you think about hip hop, salsa, the emergence of street art, the writers' bench, all of these things that had a big like the genesis of these the, these forms, a lot of it started in the Bronx, but the trickle down economics has never really impacted the Bronx. So these communities that create these beautiful art forms out of blight, out of divestment, out of neglect, um, generational curses that we didn't create, you know? Um, it's like pointing in the light that what we do is we are valuable. What we create is valuable. 
bringing some great design and some great design minds to have some monuments for the people to engage with. Um, and also, for me, it's like the Bronx is a mindset. It's like there's a Bronx in every city, in every state, every town in the world. It's there, there's an area where there are the untouchables, you know? So how do we give these people life? And I'll be I'll be ecstatic if there I see some kids in a favela in Brazil making their own ICs and selling them all over, you know, and like bringing those economics back. So so for me it's just like it's a case study. It's like a case study in doing work you believe in, making it about the work. Like I, I go work first, I'll be honest. I'm I'm like, it's about the work and I think it's gonna have this these effects. Or I'm gonna get the bag and I'm gonna put this there so it can have this effect. So when we're thinking about cultural centers, innovation labs, creating creating jobs, like these type of things are like some of the are some of the milestones and when I start to reverse engineer what success might look like. And that might change and it's a constant evolution. But mm-hmm. for me it's like really making the Bronx a world class art destination where the people actually are benefiting benefiting from this creativity that spawns because wherever you have poverty, you got to get creative. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to get creative and, and being able to hone into that and hopefully reverse some of those engineered effects that things have had on neighborhoods like the Bronx, on the Bronx and neighborhoods like it, you know. And food is kind of just setting the table for this conversation in a way. Yeah, and it's like, and yeah, because when you think about the food insecurity, when you're thinking about Hunts Point bustling and supplying a lot of the East Coast with their food, it's just the irony is 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 crazy. And then food is also when I think of food, it's one of the best connective tissues, I think that humans have. You know the first social media social network was the table or the cave where they shared a meal you know that's where things were discussed and where people broke bread and decided if they liked somebody if they had similar taste so coming and it's about nourishment so using this 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 medium that is actually a nourishing medium but also the residual effects of creating this contextualizing a language through and with this medium that could have positive implications on the people that are responsible for the vibes. Thanks, John. This is great. The culture will not be colonized. <laughs> great to have you here today. Yo, thanks for having me. And I know I've I went on fucking weird tangent and drag ons with with stories no. and shit, but you can fix that in post. It's great. It's all <laughs> it's all relative in the end. No doubt. No doubt. It thanks relates. for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 